Hi, and welcome to Real Clear Fetish Talks, Real Clear Play. It's been a while, a um, couple things came in the way, a bit unwell, um, just in general life just happened. So unfortunately, we have to wait a little while for this episode too. Today, we have IML Royalty, and also my name brother, Ralph, coming on, um, and I'll get him in. Hello, Ralph. Hello there. It's weird saying Ralph to someone else because it's not normally I run into people with my name. I know. I, my <laughs> father and my grandfather were Ralphs too, though, so I'm used to it. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a name that gets handed down in the family. Right. I'm the third. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. That's the first time I've ever heard that one before. But welcome to the live and your first live as well. Exactly. It's not that hard, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. Not so far. Fantastic. Um, well, let's just jump into the four standard questions I always start asking my guests at the start, and then we'll just see where the conversation goes over the next hour's time. Cool. Fantastic. Uh, what do you prefer I call you names, pronouns, and title? Uh, you could just call me Ralph. Uh, I actually do have a doctorate in clinical psychology. I'm a psychologist. So some people call me doctor, but Ralph works fine. And um, what was the other uh, pronouns? He, him. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I was born in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I went to uh, school in a place called Notre Dame uh, in the Midwest. Then I went to New York to go to drama school for, um, I was an actor for 20 years. Um, and that was in, was in Manhattan from 1974 to 1984. And uh, in, as that's where I went to my first, uh, my first gay bar was the Mine Shaft, which was a pretty notorious uh, gay bar in the meat pack packing district on the west side. Uh, it was an amazing place. Uh, it just uh, was the place I happened into, and it was uh, where I learned um, with a lot of guidance and mentorship all my uh, knowledge about fetish and um, flogging, single tailing, bondage. Uh, and that was all happening at the mine shaft in the bar, you know, as well as water sports and the, and the mm. more uh, the more standard things. Um, so I lived in New York for that amount of time, and then people started getting ill, and um, it scared the shit out of me. So I moved to California. I got a job opportunity to do some television work out here. So I came out to Los Angeles thinking uh, it might be different out here, which, of course, it was not. And mm -hmm. um, so I started volunteering for the Shanti Project, which was um, started in San Francisco, worked with uh, cancer patients originally, and then HIV and AIDS. And... Um, I became a hospice volunteer uh, in the late 80s and then went back to school, got my uh, master's and doctorate in clinical psychology. And I've been in private practice as a clinician um, for almost 30 years. Uh, I work a lot with um, substance use disorders I used to teach in graduate school. And uh, I see a lot of uh, kink, um, uh, clin uh, kink patients. Um, but I also see just, you know, I do a lot of couples work. So I help people with sex and intimacy. And um, uh, the straights don't have any easier time with that than we do. So I see a lot of straight people. And um, 
Uh, I started, uh, when I get sober, I've been sober for 36 years, uh, clean and sober. Um, and when I got sober, I was under direction to sort of not go back into bars because, uh, bars were so associated with, um, with my kink that I didn't know how to separate the two. I didn't feel safe going into a bar. I didn't feel uh, comfortable enough to uh, explore my kink without being high. Uh, so I sort of, uh, kept that cordoned off for uh, probably 10 or 12 of my first years of sobriety. And then I think it was Folsom in San Francisco. Uh, some friends of mine who were sober were going to the Eagle and they said, come with us. And I said, I haven't been to a bar since I've been sober. And they said, well, come with us. You'll be fine. And uh, I did. And I was fine. And um, that got me started back into queer nightlife. And um I expanded uh, my uh, my footprint in the world to be much larger and to include, you know, my kinks back again in play spaces, public play spaces, dungeons, and um, I became a member of a club in Los Angeles called Avatar, um, and uh, which I've just been president of for the past three years, uh, and that's BDSM education, um, so that people can explore uh, all kinds of things that they might want to explore with education and guidance. And um, so we're in the bars a lot. We have um, educational programs monthly and um, we, it's been around since 1983. So um, we just provided the play space, the dungeon space for CLAW when it was in Los Angeles. Um, anyway, so getting back involved with Avatar helped me uh, get more, um, just got my stride back with being uh, kinky and uh, clean. And um, so somebody suggested uh, that uh, I run for a title um, uh, and I said no. And then the next year I went back to my club. This was Gay Naturist International, which is a nudist club, um, which has a strong leather contingent and a dungeon space and leatherworks is on site. And we have a lot of classes, saline infusions, you know, flogging bondage, all this kind of, and we have a working dungeon in the space, but it's essentially within a naked camp of hundreds of guys, 700 guys from all over the world. And, so they asked me to run and I said no. And then they asked me the next year to run and I said no. And they asked me the third year and I said, who else is running? And um, I waited until the very end and they said, here's the deal. We will send you to Chicago. We'll pay for your hotel. Um, I had to pay my airfare, but we'll pay for your entrance fees. And uh, I'd always wanted to go to IML. I'd seen a porn with um, uh, Joe Gallagher in it, who was one of the IMLs. And uh, it's, uh, porn that's interspersed with uh, videos of him competing and winning in IML and then in sort of sexual situations, fucking guys and being fucked at in a gangbang with his medallion on. And I was like, I don't know what IML is, but it looks really <laughs> hot. And I want to be that guy. I want to go to that place. And um, so I went to IML thinking there's just no, you know, I just don't want to embarrass myself. I want to do well by the club. And because uh, I was 64 at the time. And, um, you know, you know, IMLs are generally in their 30s, 40s. Um, so no one had ever been anywhere near my age who'd won IML. So thankfully, luckily, um, surprisingly, I won and uh, became IML in 2017. 
and traveled all over the world. Um, very out. Uh, it's I think we went I think in Darklands. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, I got very involved with the European community, and uh, they've been very supportive of me. I've been very supportive of them, and so you know the bartenders at Prince Connect know I don't drink, so they don't send me alcohol. Mm -hmm. They give me free rounds of drinks, whatever I want. So um, you know, it's just been it's been full circle for me from uh, being somebody who couldn't imagine being kinky without being fucked up to being, you know, uh, leader of the kinksters for a year um, and uh, sober guy. So it's all worked out really great. Fantastic. Well, you've kind of answered the next question, which is completely sober or social drinker, but you've already answered that question. For me, completely sober is what I, it's the only thing I really knew at the time. Uh, and so, uh, and I also, you know, my brother OD'd and I have uh, family members who, my my clan just doesn't have very good luck with uh, drugs mm -hmm. and alcohol, so I just stay clear. Okay. And the last question, um, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I used these questions 10,000 times, but I still can't remember <laughs> on my own questions. Um, what is clear play to you and why is it important? Oh gosh, uh, I, to me, play is about relationship. Uh, it is about connection. It's not about my cock or it's not about somebody else's hole or nips or it's not about any of that. It's about uh, true expression and connection. And I, I learned how to participate in that uh, being high. Uh, and I, I've done that, but I've done that with people that I trusted and that I knew and who knew me and who wanted to teach me how to be responsible um, as a player. Um, but again, it was the 70s and early 80s and we were all in spaces where people weren't uh, clear. Um, so I played with people who are high and I don't enjoy it. And um, I've, you know, Narcan is something that I've had to administer. I just, to me, it's like play is something that should be done very responsibly and very uh, with a clear head and uh, and um, an ability to accurately communicate my experience and their experience to each other so that I know what boundaries and limits are. And I think you lose sight of those when you're not clear headed. So to me, it's really important. Yeah, it's 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 when, when you're talking about like you learned your like your kink side with the drugs at the time. Mm. Um, it, I, I can definitely recognize that. I had kink before drugs, but whilst doing drugs, it got so intertwined, I had to put it on the shelf for two years. Yeah. And it was for me, because I'm a leather man through and through, it was very heartbreaking for me that every time I put on a pair of leather jeans, my brain would go, ooh, what can I use? Mm. Um, and that was quite hard. So um, we're just gonna go into a conversation and then I'm gonna pick apart a little bit of the stuff you've said. There's quite a lot to take in there. Um, sure. You, you, you mentioned that you were in New York, you were um, an actor um, and, and you moved away from there. So up until you moved away from New York and, 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 and drugs, how did you get into the drug scene? I know it's a very different time when we're talking the 70s and the 80s when it comes to drugs and so on. How, how did you get into it? And how does it compare to what you're, what you see now, in a way, like with the chem sex scene? 
Yeah. Uh, gosh, I just, I just, um, I guess just like three weeks ago or something, Brew closed Backstreet, and that's such a loss, I think, for the for the London community. I mean, I had, I've had incredible times at the Hoist, uh, completely uh, clear-headed and um, just a wonderful time. I, listen, when when I was a kid. Uh, I drank uh, scotch uh, neat and I did a lot of cocaine and and then you know the cocaine ends up to then smoking crack and crank and um, but uh, it was pre I didn't even know about crystal meth at the time I certainly didn't know about fentanyl at the time so mm -hmm. the world is really different now with um, you know just heard of another friend uh, passing who from a fentanyl overdose and mm -hmm. It's just a very different world. You know, a friend of mine's going out to a, uh, who's in from out of town, from London actually, going to meet a friend at a bar. And I said, just make sure that when you leave your, you know, you put something on top of your uh, drink, you know, a uh, coaster or something on top of your drink so that somebody doesn't put something in it. Um, and that's just not, I grew up in such a safe environment. It was the mine shaft and it was the kinkiest bar in New York uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, uh, I'll tell you a story because it's my favorite story of uh, I'd, I'd been there. I'd been to the mine shaft a couple of times. And as you may or may not know, um, there was a sign at the entrance of the mine shaft that was about sort of no colognes, no Lacoste, no alligators, no polo shirts, no uh, disco wear. And basically it was just, you know, uh, like my uniform when I was a kid was uh, white wife beater, 501 jeans, engineer boots, and either a leather vest or a leather jacket. And mm -hmm. uh, that was it. I didn't know there was no such thing. I didn't, hadn't seen formals in my life until much later on. And um, actually, this is probably what I wore the first day when I was IML at uh, Folsom Berlin. And all the European ministers were horrified that the IML had... Um, I mean, I had my medallion on, but um, they were like, you know, they had leather pants with leather chaps over the leather pants and then a leather shirt and a leather tie and a leather vest and a langlet's jacket and a cover. And I had on, you know, this and a pair of leather jeans. And um, so I learned uh, to sort of adapt with the lifestyle. But mm. um, it just it was uh, I don't know what it would have been like if. Oh, so anyway, I had gone a couple times and I'd, I'd not really spoken to anyone. And um, I think it was like the third time, maybe the fourth time I went and uh, I saw this really attractive, sexy guy uh, across the room and he came over and he, you know, he gave me the head nod and uh, I instinctively knew that I'm supposed to bow my head to his head nod. And he said, you know, and I came over to him and he just grabbed me and started kissing me. And uh, it was so uh, delicious. And um, he said, strip. And I said, okay. So I took my clothes off. I put my boots back on. He checked my clothes with Wally at the, at the, at the door. And uh, he tied hemp around my cock and balls and led me over to his friends by uh, sort of a hemp leash around my crotch. And um, that's the way I stayed for the rest of the night. So those guys were my protectors. Those guys mm -hmm. would say, this guy's safe. This guy's not safe. This guy will want to hit on you. Say no. 
this guy you want to make sure that he does hit on you because he's a great player and he'll teach you some really good stuff and mm -hmm. so i just had like all these um you know leather uncles that were teaching me how to be a player and i got really good at playing from them because they were the best in the world and mm -hmm. um, so it's like that but it was always with you know scotch and cocaine and so i just I did. I was always a little high before I went out. I got more high when I was there, and I, you know, I always kept scotch by my bedside uh, when I went to sleep at night in case I, you know, in case the cocaine was too activating and I couldn't sleep. So, mm -hmm. the idea of having, like, I just went to IML um, a few weeks ago in Chicago, and I had a great time. I went to the Black and Blue Ball, had a great time, went with my boyfriend, and. You know, we had sex with this adorable um, boy and um, he was delighted. We were delighted. And, you know, I was completely sober and it was a great experience. I, I remember where I've been for 36 years every night and every morning. It's a very nice feeling. What, what, what made you want to make the change? Like, what made you want to become sober? I had, I was... Um, I was a blackout drinker, um, so I I would wake up with dents in my car. I would wake up with I woke up with a motorcycle jacket in the passenger seat one time, cock rings on the on the car floor. Uh, I just I there were too many nights that I didn't remember where I'd been and what I'd done and who I'd been with, and um, my life was getting really really small. Um, at that point, I couldn't afford uh, good scotch, so I drank crappy scotch, like well scotch, or I drank, you know, generic wines. And um, cocaine was out of the question. I just couldn't afford it anymore. And I lived in, I was in L.A. at the time. I lived in an apartment, and I'd set my futon on fire with a lamp, and I'd flooded my apartment because I thought I would sober up for, a, for an acting gig that I had by getting in the bathtub. And while I was filling the bathtub, I went and took a nap. Well, the nap was an hour, so it just flooded my whole apartment. So I was just, I recognized that it was, you know, I, I was driving drunk. I just recognized that it was not, um, it wasn't working anymore. The thing that I didn't realize is that I didn't, there was another way of living. And um, uh, two friends of mine were talking about Al-Anon one day, I think quite purposefully. Uh, mm. And it was the first time I'd ever thought about it. And so I just called an AA central office and they said, go to a meeting. And I went and um, people took care of me in the same way at meetings that they did when I was at the mine shop. They just, they took me out to dinner. They told me where to go the next day. I'd just been instructed about everything by generous, loving people, you know, even mm -hmm. with IML, like, you know, all the contestants in the IMLs before me, you know, just, took me under their wings and Daniel Dumont uh, was one of my champions. And he just said, you want to go to this event? You want to go to this event sit with these people, do this, you know, and it was, I've always just been really lucky that people sort of guided me. Yeah. I'm, I miss Daniel so badly. Sometimes it's, it was yeah. such a loss. Um, so we get to the eighties where, um, well, everything changed. Um, you mentioned that you moved away from New York because it, it got scary. Yeah. Um, but of course, you said Los Angeles was no different. Um, of course, that's been a subject that's been talked about la a lot last year and a half, two years because of the pandemic, but also because of programs like Pose and 
um, It's a Sin here in the UK. Mm. What was your experience around that time? I don't want to go too dark, but of course, it, it's important to talk about. Oh, gosh. It went from, I had a house on Fire Island with some friends, uh, and um, it went from, uh, I mean, I feel, I felt bad. I still feel bad for the generation before mine. They lived such a different life than we lived. Uh, they were, uh, they were outed. They could lose their job. They were sort of, they lived in that kind of self-hating homosexuality that I didn't have to live through. And um, so there was a sexual freedom. Uh, I lived in the West Village. We all, you know, it was like we were all clones. We wore we had to find each other you know we we look like the village people or we look like you know um you know a tom of finland drawing because that's oh, uh, being a clone now has become fashion it's come yeah, back, yeah, yeah. which is it great has. and uh uh you know i lived i could see the mine shaft from my apartment so um it and i lived right on the west side highway which is where the docks were and the trucks were so I could hop across the West Side Highway and be in the middle of a scene in the docks, or I could just walk down the street and there were the trucks, which, you know, people were having sex all over both of those spaces. It was a time when, you know, I mean, I got mugged a few times, but when you say mugged, it's not the same kind of mugging as now. Like, it, mm -hmm. I wasn't in fear of my life, you know, I just would take very little money with me and I wouldn't wear jewelry. And so if they would, you know, if they'd asked for my wallet, they'd get, you know, 20 bucks. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't wear my watch. And um, so it, I was never in danger of my life. It was just people who were trying to get by or score yeah. or whatever it was. So it was amazing. And Fire Island was amazing. It was, you know, it was beautiful. And we had a lovely time. And everybody knew each other. And we were, you know, all having fun. And, you know, then all of a sudden, like this one kid who was a really good friend who was just beautiful, his name was Chrissy. He used to go to the chic parties down like at Calvin Klein's house. And um, I was invited to those he was invited to those. And he was just this beautiful, beautiful boy. And um, he was one of the first to get sick. And, and um, uh, then there was a kid that I dated who was in cats. And um, he got sick and um, the leather and the theater communities were the hardest and the first hit with AIDS. So it just, you know, there was just a lot of whispering and there was a lot of fear and we didn't, things were starting to close and uh, it just, it started to get dark. And um, I don't know why I thought California, it was sunshine, so it must be healthier. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah. I came out here and it wasn't any different and um but I became different you know I was here a year and then I got I got clean and sober so um I I do wonder what that year would have been like if I stayed in New York if I would have survived that year um because it was just we knew so little that basically they were asking us to curtail everything in our existence and I don't think I would have been able to do that mm -hmm. and so to me, it's like, I, I really, uh, I miss New York still. I certainly miss those times. I'm very nostalgic when I, you know, see It's a Sin or, you know, Pose or any of our read Amistad Mopan or, you know, it's like I write essays from time to time. And that's what I write about is the times that I, there was just a, a movie, a new movie about Fire Island that came out. And I was like, my God, that is not the Fire Island that I knew when I was a kid. And um 
you know, but they're having a ton of fun and they're just reinventing everything uh, to uh, sort of to represent um, who they are in the world. And we were very different people. Um, but I'm thrilled that I, I, you know, I'm thrilled that I got to live in those 10 years in Manhattan because it was, you know, it was uh, an amazing Studio 54, you know, all of it. It was really an amazing time to be around. And then when I left, it was just the worst time ever. You know, it was just, it would, everything was shutting down and everyone was terrified. Yeah, it's, it's for someone like me, I'm, I'm kind of almost the last generation that will have just a sense of something being off, at least in, in like the early 90s. Um, my experience with HIV has not really been traumatic. I think the first time it got onto my radar, and, and I'm sure there's a couple of people that's going to laugh at this, was from an episode of Beverly Hills 9210, where one of the characters is working in a hospice. Mm. And she gets blood on her hands and there's a whole dramatic thing around that. We, all the facts in it is wrong. Um, now that I've rewatched it, it's like you can't get a test within two days of being exposed to it. That doesn't work like that. But it, 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 that, that's the extent I've been exposed to it. So I knew there was definitely something wrong. I've also volunteered with a Danish organization called Stop AIDS in my um, late teens, start 20s. Um, but it was never to the extent or, or the same kind of fear that was portrayed in like It's a Sin and Pose. Um, and it was quite eye-opening to watch it. Yeah, we didn't know anything. They thought maybe it came from poppers. They thought, you know, maybe it came from kissing. They thought, you know, it's just like, it, they were trying to find out what it was. All they knew it was this uh, gay plague that, you know, which it never was. But um, mm. all they knew is that sort of it was hitting our community hard and fast and that it was incredibly lethal. Um, you know, I did come back to New York uh, a few years later. My ex um, was in the hospital. He had Kaposi sarcoma and a few other things. And um, to be released from the hospital, he needed somebody to live with him 24-7. So I moved back to New York to stay in his apartment with him until he got released. Otherwise, he would have had to stay in the uh, hospital. Mm. And, um, you know, I remember walking into his hospital room and seeing he had, you know, a, a smock, you know, one of those things that you wear at the hospital that was open in the back, just tied at the, tied at the neck. And mm. I walked in, he was at the sink, and his back was full of these black lesions. And, you know, uh, I just started to cry. I just, like, I was terrified and appalled i mean this is a man that i'd laid on the beach with this is a man that i'd fucked and i'd seen that back you know this is a man that i'd bitten the back of his neck countless i mean it just like it was he was a beautiful 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 young man and um to see his body so disfigured and know that that was just the tip of the iceberg was mm. going under his skin um, so, but, you know, that's when I started to learn that I can caretake somebody who has KS and not contract KS and, you know, that there, there are barriers to infection and, you know, um, it's why I got involved in hospice care and, you know, uh, why I started being a clinician. So I wanted to be of service. I wanted to do something, you know, if I was going to live, you know, I'll be 70 in September, which is shocking to me when most of my friends didn't make it to 40 and 
So when I get, you know, uh, crunchy about something, I just think I've had twice the opportunity to have a life than my friends got. So I want to make it meaningful. I want to make it, I want to, I have an obligation, you know, to do something sort of, uh, it's one of the reasons I ran for IML. I, I wanted to, it really honored the men who taught me what it's like to be a leather man and, mm. um, and have integrity and be of service. And uh, I, I, I know you know that I, I fight um, for the ban on conversion therapy I've been fighting for years. And, and um, it's one of the reasons that I wanted to travel around the world to educate countries that didn't know that conversion therapy was still very active and very powerful mm -hmm. in their countries that yes, it still exists. It still exists in 30 States in the United States. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's mind fucking our kids. It's making them feel a kind of shame. That's really hard. You know, that I think shame and chemsex have a lot to do with each other. Uh, and, and so I, you know, if we start, sort of not having them have access to our kids, maybe they have a better, uh, a better chance when they're adults to not feel like they have to stifle their feelings, stifle their impulses, feel ashamed about who they are and what they do. Yeah, we, we, we are in the middle. You, I'm sure you've seen what the UK is trying to do. They've yeah. agreed to ban conversion ferry, just not for trans people. I know. Which is... Mind-blowing to me why you would pick and choose. It's not a ban until everything is banned, right. and that's just what it is. It's it's. I I I sing with the London Gay Men's Chorus, and there's several members in there that has been through conversion therapy and and experienced how damaging it is to their self worth, and it's just a lot of internalized homophobia because of it. It. Oh, I'm I'm so lucky. I I'm from a family who's so supportive uh, in anything I do. As long as I'm happy, that's mm. the main thing. I couldn't imagine having a family pushing me towards this therapy that doesn't work and is so damaging. It's it's damaging, and it has uh, you know it. You know the, when we were they asked some clinicians when Ted Lou introduced the bill in California. He had introduced it a few years before it actually um, got to the floor and it just never made it because basically what you're telling people is they can't do business. And in the U.S., that's a that's a that's a touchy subject to tell someone that they can't do their business. And so they wanted licensed clinicians in to try to help word the um, the bill so that it would feel like it 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 was protective rather than um, rather than restrictive. And um I'm really proud to have been part of those initial conversations. And, you know, but one of the concessions we had to make is that it was conversion therapy for minors. So mm. it's still, uh, you know, anybody who's not a minor can, you know, they're still practitioners of conversion therapy. And, you know, we also can't, um, we can't legislate um, pastoral counseling. So uh, religious organizations can provide uh damaging therapy to their to their uh, congregation and their the kids in their congregation uh, without any recourse. Um, so there's still things that we have to fight. But yes, I, I know it's like the UK has a really interesting relationship with um, with um, lesbianism and TERFs. Uh, the, yeah. the, and so that's a it's powerful 
I think that has a lot to do with why um, that was cordoned off, that the T was cordoned off from the LGBT uh, contingent with the conversion therapy. But yes, no one is free until we're all free. Absolutely. That, yeah, it's, 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 we also have a bit of a problem. I'm, I'm not going to mention where I work, but it, it's um, in the last year or so, we got added pronouns to our signatures at work. We also got the free choice of choosing your gender on your work profile. You don't even have to show a doctor's note and so on, which is all great, but there was no explanation. It felt very much like a tick box thing to get onto the Stonewall's working list, which is brilliant. It's, it's, a, it's something to strive for and, and, and I'm very happy with my workplace and so on, but it was very much a box, tick boxing exercise. There was no explanation. So I've, I've internally been pushing for some trans or um, gender non-conforming uh, awareness training um because it's important because there's there is a section of people that will will not understand it's not necessarily coming from a uh um a malicious place they just don't understand right uh, you know we live in this binary world and and anything that doesn't conform to those binary definitions is vexing to some people and when they're vexed by something they just want that to not be and so I've been on the board of the Los Angeles Gender Center for, uh, well, I've been working with them for 20 years, but I've been on the board for the past five or six years. And, um, you know, even within our board, even within our organization, it's a trans ED, it's trans uh, patients, it's trans uh, clinicians. Um, it, it's still, you know, there's still so much progress that needs to be made. I mean, even in Los Angeles, it was always the Gay and Lesbian Center uh, until probably five years ago. And then it was the LGBT Center. And, you know, it's, we're making progress, but, you know, for every step forward we take, there's people who are really threatened by that forward momentum. And then at least in the US, there's a lot of sort of, um, there's been the Republican Party has been putting a lot of um, anti-trans legislation through all over the country, just in insidious and uh, but very significant ways. So um, it is something that I think as members of our community, we have the responsibility to stand up for those who are being um, who are being treated less fairly than we are, you know. Mm. So you you mentioned with your work, you, you incorporate like um, kink in your in your like therapy or, and so on can can you talk a little bit about that how how that work how did you how did you incorporate that into it because as you say every couple all depending on what what their background and what their sexual tendencies are they we all need a little bit of help sometimes so i'm really curious how you make that work yeah um uh there's a thing in um the national coalition for sexual freedom has a site has a uh, tab on their site uh, called the CAP program, K-A-P, Kink Aware Professionals. And if you go to their website, you can uh, drop down that menu and there's Kink Aware Professionals all over the, this is just the U.S., unfortunately. I, I, maybe not, actually. Um, but you can find lawyers, you can find dentists, you can find psychologists, you can find um, real estate agents like who are kink aware you know, with therapy, it's, it's, you know, there's two things actually that they always used to say is it, it, problems between couples are either 
sex or money. And um, those two are the sort of sex, money and death are the three things that we never talk about in our culture. And um, uh, so um, I, because I worked for Shanti because it was, and because I worked in AIDS from the very beginning in hospice, um, I got associated as someone who wasn't uncomfortable talking about sexual issues and intimacy. So sex and intimacy became something that was, um, was definitely part of sort of my reputation in Los Angeles. And, um, and you know, with Fifty Shades of Grey or with, uh, particularly with me being IML, I'm very open, you know, mm -hmm. you can Google me and you'll find, you know, me with my butt to the audience at IML. <laughs> I think you can find mine as well. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, it, uh, that's actually been an advantage because people know that I'll be someone who's not sex shaming of them for, you know, for whatever kind of free expression. You know, I mean, I've been in a relationship for 28 years and, uh, you know, I remember the first time I, I put a cock ring on. I remember the first time, you know, I so, flogged my husband. You know, it's like I, it was it's always another it's another level of self-expression and self-disclosure that has some fear associated with it. So mm. being somebody who's traveled that path, I think I'm, uh, I have an ability and a duty to help other people express things that sort of other clinicians might not be so readily available to, to discuss. So people know coming in that I'm, there's nothing they can say that's going to shock me. And um, then I'm, I ask really direct questions about sort of, uh, you know, like I remember most times when people say they're not having sex, the next question I have is, well, you know, and in the presence of their partner, how often do you masturbate? And, you know, you immediately see them, you know, panic. And, you know, then they'll say, you know, two times a week or something. And then the partner's like, wait a minute, what the fuck? You masturbate twice a week and we're not having any sex. And so it opens a conversation about mm. sort of that, that you are being sexual, you're just not being intimate. Not that there's anything wrong with beating off. It's all fine and it's all mm. good. But um, if it's secretive and not integrated, it becomes less effective for couples need that kind of, uh, I think couples need a sexual bond in order to stay vibrant and alive. It's, it's, it's communication. Communication is so important. And you also need to be able to talk about everything. I, 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 I talk with some gay men who are into kinky sex and so on, where their partner isn't, and they would never dream of telling them. And I'm just like, well, I'm not, I'm not saying that the partner, the partner they're with has to be kinky, but it, it just feels a bit dishonest not telling the partner they do do these things and it's it's just feels like there's a part of them they hide from their partner right um, I, you know there's this uh stupid little phrase uh in couples therapy with therapists is intimacy is into me you see and you know if you're not seeing all of me then i'm i'm not fully expressed and then we're not fully engaged i want my partner to see like I want my husband to see everything and I have a boyfriend and I want him to see everything too. And, you know, my 
my husband has been so great, you know, came with me to IML, has been by my side, he's traveled the world, well, he's traveled the world to the places that he wanted to go to. <laughs> Which is fair enough, because you do go a lot of places as an IML. Yeah, so I was uh, on the road 47 weekends out of 52 when I was IML. Um, but, you know, if it was Berlin, or if it was Antwerp, or if it was Paris, or, you know, someplace, or Chicago, or New York, then he would come. If it was Tulsa, he'd leave that to me and I'd go by myself. But, you know, he he's never been into the same things that I've been into. Um, there's enough connective tissue between the two of us that our our sexual relationship and our actual relationship is vibrant and healthy. Mm. But there's a part of me that he's not he he will he will accommodate, but he doesn't have the same passion. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, I have a boyfriend who has the same passion. So he went to IML with me this year. And um, and it was super, super fun um, to have somebody who felt as uh, free and as hungry for that kind of expression as did I. I was just really excited by it. And so that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a person who thinks that one person has to meet every need that we have. Yeah. Uh, I have friends who meet certain needs that my partner doesn't need or my boyfriend doesn't, you know, it's just like, I think that there's ways to express ourselves. I just don't like hiding anything. You know, I don't like, if there's parts of me that are going on, you don't have to share them, but you do have to know about them. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, on occasion, it's been, uh, the ones I've been talking to has been bisexual men where they have a girlfriend and it, that, adds another layer of complication because they might not know they're bisexual. Um, and, and yes, I can see the problem, but it's also, I, I've talked to guys and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if she would be into rubber or leather. It's like, well, have you asked her? She might be into it, or at least, as you say, might be able to accommodate or be much more open-minded than you think she is. I generally think people are always more open-minded than you think they are. Uh, there was a woman who volunteered with me at Shanti. This is back in um, the early 90s. And when I started my private practice, um, she called me up and she said, I'd like to come in with my husband to work on our sexual relationship. And I said, sure, of course. And so they showed up and we had a, a lovely first session. And um, generally, I ask people to talk in the car on the way home to talk over the course of the week. And then if they both feel like they want to make another appointment, uh, then they make another appointment. But I don't ask them to commit to an appointment in front of me. I'd like them to make that decision out of my presence with no sort of um, coercive power to it mm. and or accommodating me like they don't want to hurt my feelings. So they make another appointment. So um, they called up and uh, they made another appointment and the, they walked in and I could tell something was off. And the guy said, I'm, I have a real problem with you. And I said, oh, okay. Um, can, you, can you let me know what's going on? And he said, you should have told me you were gay. And I said, oh, okay. Um, I said, actually, I don't think it has anything to do with my, our work together. It feels like it's a non-clinical issue for me as far as you're concerned, um, but I'd like to know your experience. And he said, well, you're talking about sex with my wife. I don't need some fucking fag to tell me how to have sex with my wife. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and, you know, 
we had a little bit of a conversation about whether or not he could use that word ever again in my office. And, <laughs> and uh, I said, but here's what I can actually, I, I know a lot to teach you about how to fuck your wife. If you're open and interested, if you don't feel like it's going to fit, that's fine. I can send you to somebody else. But um, from that moment on, he was, he was on board. He just had to get that off his chest. He had to he had to let me know that he was surprised and and that it was challenging for him. But he also knew that I could help him with his problem. And so to me, it's like that's what was most important to him is help me with this problem. And I'll put aside my homophobia um, because I need your services. And so to me, it's like I think everyone is able to put aside some of what they think they need to get to the greater need, which is, mm. you know, People think they need comfort and stability and privacy, but what they really need is passion and connection and expression. And sometimes those are different interests. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, absolutely. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, and and it's, it's a very interesting story and, and the way he might talk to you. Um, mm. um, but yeah, it's, it's weird because at the start of my, when I went into, when after my last use up which is coming up to five years ago um i started therapy with a psychotherapist uh through the local drug counseling and my biggest problem was he was a cisgendered white male um and also straight and had no idea about anything about kink nothing that was my biggest issue because he almost made me feel my kink was maybe damaging for me because mm. he couldn't quite understand the BDSM in my, my relationship. And he thought that could be quite damaging. Um, I also felt a little bit like he was sitting and writing a new book because he found my, me quite fascinating. <laughs> it's, and and the, the last, last time I engaged with this service, I kind of like, I kind of want someone who's a part of the community if I'm completely honest so I don't have to explain everything I'm lucky now to have a therapist who does it for free who helps me out and we just kind of sit and chat but he's a part of the community and I can bring anything to him and he knows about my kink and so on and it's much more comfortable for me because I don't have to explain what words mean and what is this hanky code for and why are you putting a hand up this bum or um, why are you going to a park or stuff like that? It's it's just it makes life so much easier, especially when there's no judgment. Right. I think that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, uh, it's what I found with the trans community twenty years ago um, that they spent so much time and money educating their clinicians as to sort of their requirements, who they were, what their decisions were, how their decisions were made, whether or not they were healthy decisions. They're just like, you don't want to spend your time and money bringing somebody up to speed for something they should know. And so it's when somebody comes in and talks about BDSM or if they're in a, a DS relationship or an MS relationship, like you don't want to have to sit with somebody who might think, well, are you acting something out, sort of some unconscious degradation from your childhood. Like, you don't want to be dealing with that. You want some, yeah. to, be, you know, walk in and have somebody who, you know, if they say, okay, I'm in an MS relationship, it's full time. Uh, and my slave and I, you know, you want somebody who's going to go, okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, now let's get down to the issue as opposed to sort of get distracted mm. by 
Can you tell me more about what that's like? Like, how do you do your finances or who does the laundry? Like, you just don't, you, I charge people a lot of money to come see me and it's time is really valuable. Mm -hmm. So as much knowledge as I can bring to their situation, uh, the better service I'll provide. So, um, you know, and, 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 you know, it goes the other way around. Like I get referrals for, you know, to see kids all the time. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't do kids, you know, it's not my jam. There's, I know tons of people who will have a better relationship with your 16 year old boy than I will. And mm. so to me, it's like, there, you know, we can't provide all the services to all people with the same amount of excellence, I think. So yeah, anybody who walks in my office knows, because I mean, it's on my website, you know, that I'm IML, that I talk about sex and intimacy, that BDSM is part of what my mission is about understanding safe, healthy, playful expression of all parts of ourselves that isn't enacting some trauma or isn't enacting some unresolved psychological issues from our early lives. So mm. it's like, I think that's invaluable. I wouldn't never want to go to a therapist that I thought, are you judging me for what I'm talking about right now? That's just. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 I've, I've had experiences at my sexual health clinic where I've come in on a calm down and they referred me up to the therapist upstairs and they just assumed I was HIV positive which I have no issue with, but it shouldn't be a thing. It shouldn't just assume because I have a drug problem that I'm HIV positive. And it felt it's like you felt, you felt a little bit judged in a way, maybe not intentionally, but unintentionally on kind of between the lines. So it's, it's so important that you have someone who can help with the issue and has the knowledge. It's one of the things I find I'm no expert in uh, being sober. I'm still, well, I'm only coming up to five years. I'm no expert in everything fetish, but I know I have the two combinations of those two. So I can, I can at least navigate someone's like, how do I do kink sober now? How do I learn how to do that? And, and this is one of the reasons I use this platform is I do have people contacting me about that. And it's like, well, this is what I did. It doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna work for you, but this is the path I took um, and it's... I think it's incredibly valuable what you're doing. I, I, you know, LA is, is uh, an odd place in that um, being sober is not at all unusual here. Mm. And, but I've traveled the world enough to know that the idea that some, I mean, the guy who was IML before me, uh, Tigger was sober as well. And mm. so I do sober, sober IMLs back to back um, and I'll tell you, it was so meaningful to me everywhere I go um, inside uh, dungeon spaces or um, at uh, uh, presentations or in bars, people who know I'm sober come up and say, tell me how you did it. Like, tell me, tell me how you've been able to, because I've been in some of the kinkiest places in the world, as have you, I'm sure. Um, Darkland's actually been sort of not out of the loop there entirely. Um, uh, and I've done everything sober. And, uh, and so to me, it's like, it, it just our mere presence in, I think is helpful because people then can, because I'm approachable enough, you're approachable enough, um, that people go, 
I have kind of a problem. Do you have five minutes? Can you talk to me? Can we step up? And I, to me, that's just the most valuable thing in the world because what I don't want is our community to sort of uh, go down a chemsex rabbit hole where there's no other option but then to sort of comply with something that's unhealthy for people. So to me, it's like I want people to know there's other ways. Like I can play, I can have more fun like I see people when they're in chemsex and, and they're playing and there's a kind of deadness around the eyes because there's no expression and there's no connection. Mm. People want, want to know you can do all this and you can be clear headed and remember every moment of what happened and be able to communicate every moment of what's happening with your partner and you don't miss anything. I guarantee you. It's, 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 it's when 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 you start that journey it is hard work it, and uh, i always kind of tend to ask the question i've probably said this on other episodes is when someone approaches me with this issue it's like to do kink sober i just kind of go did you have kink before drugs or did you find kink in drugs because that is a big difference because if you had kink before then well then you're naturally kinky if you found kink in drugs it might be the drugs doing it uh, and you need to figure that out Right. Um, and that, that's kind of the two definitions I, I, I go by when people at least ask me as, as a ground question to them. Um, so as, as IML winner, as one of the very select few that has this title, and then I, I wore this specially for today. Uh, Can't really you. see it because of this angle, but yeah, I, I wore this specially for today. My medallion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, class, I'm class 31. So I'm, I'm quite a long time ago now, and, and I was only 24, very, very, wow. very young. Um, how I did it, I have no idea, because it was a whirlwind, and I was scared shitless, and it was also the first time I would ever been outside the country that far away from home. So, um, so how did you find like winning IML and, and, and going around to these places? I know you've been sober for, for a long, 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 long time, but you must have seen some of the, the more the backside of all this, like the, as you say, you will see people who use drugs in, in different settings and so on. Have, have you experienced that people will approach more about this or have people just completely ignored it and just offered stuff to you and so on because you are in that status, if you could say. Yeah. Um, uh, I think part of it probably has to do with the fact that I'm 64 and not 24 when I won. Uh, that's a very, people treat 64 year olds very different than they do 24 year olds. I've been around the block and people know that, you know, people know that part of my story is that I grew up in the mine shaft and, um, and that I'm not a novice at things. And uh, so I think, I think it's harder for someone who doesn't have that history behind them um, it's a little bit of a shorthand of sort of, I don't think people look at me at my age and think this is somebody who I can take advantage of. So, you know, it's like uh, Mike at uh, Prince Connect, the bartender at Prince Connect kept giving me shots. Like he kept, <laughs> just, you know, saying uh, to the IML, give it to the IML. And I, I was like, Mike, I don't drink. Yeah, 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 I know. And then he would give me another shot. And, so to me, it's like, you know, people have offered me tons of drugs. People have offered me uh, tons of alcohol. It's just, it's, 
it's not something that I even consider. So it's very easy for me to gracefully decline because it's mm. not lightest consideration that I would say yes. And I think because I don't make a deal out of it, because I'm not insulted by it, and I'm not tempted by it, it's rude. I think they're just trying to be friendly and kind. I just don't want your Molly. Thank you very much. And, you know, and I just smile and walk away. And they think, oh, he's probably on Molly anyway, because he looks like he's having a great time. And so um, I've seen, yeah, you know, some of the events that you and I have been to, you know, the ambulance is taking people away from um, from parties that I've been to. And mm -hmm. uh, it's sad. I got, uh, I got, I went to a party at XXL uh, a bunch of years ago and I was dancing with my husband on the dance floor. We had a bunch of friends. We, I think it was New Year's Eve and um, we we're having a blast. And um, I, you know, I was drinking soda water and um, uh, this security guard followed me to my table with my friends told me to get up and pulled me away and uh, didn't say anything to my friends, didn't say anything to me and pulled me into the back room and where all the security was. And, and, and he said, stand right here. And I said, okay. And <laughs> Joe told me after my husband told me afterwards, he thought they were interviewing me or asking my advice. When I go to events, a lot of times what happens if you're a psychologist, if there's been um, uh, any, um, like I'm on the incident response team to most events. So I'm the guy who gets called if you OD. I'm the guy who gets called if you sexually assault somebody or you're sexually assaulted. So to me, it's like uh, I've seen a lot and um, mm -hmm. it has to do with people who have not calculated their drugs properly. So this guy said, I saw him, he, he has drugs in his underwear. And I was like, what? And he said, I saw you put your drugs in underwear. And what I realized is I don't wear underwear. So I was moving my, um, I've been dancing. So I was moving my cock over to the side to sort of sit comfortably where it usually sits. And, um, and uh, he thought that I was putting drugs in there. And uh, so I said, uh, listen, it, I, I don't wear underwear and I don't do drugs. So you've got the wrong guy. And he said, I saw you fucker. And I was like, okay, now you're being hostile and rude and I paid money to get here and I'm with friends and I'm an American and you shouldn't use that tone of voice with me. And the lead guy said, well, just drop your trousers so I can see your underwear. And I said, I'm not wearing underwear. And they said, well then drop your trousers anyway. I said, gladly. So like, all this room full of security guards, I'm happy to show my cock. Uh, and so I dropped my trousers and, and the guy was like, shit, I could have sworn you put drugs in your underpants. I said, that's fine. I don't mind the mistake. What I mind is the tone and the language you use. Mm -hmm. like, just don't call me a fucker <laughs> or a faggot. Like then I'm fine. Um, but I went back to my friends and um, we all, you know, had a good laugh about it. But then when I left that evening to get, we went to Kocheck, I saw a guy doing exactly what they had. Cause I'd never heard of such a thing. I saw a guy putting, drugs in his underwear and going through security with drugs in his underwear. I was like, oh, okay, so it's a thing. But, you know, yeah. it's just that, uh, like Tigger had um, the AA symbol on his backpack, mm. backpatch when he was IML. I didn't put it on because um, I put Born Perfect on, which is the conversion therapy piece. And, mm. And I didn't, uh, I didn't think it was necessary for it to be on my back in order for it to be public. But it's part of every interview I did. It's part of every 
uh, piece that I write has to do with my story. You know, my story is that sort of I came to, to know who I was in this particular way. My knowledge about myself grew and, and then was limited by drug use. And so I eliminated the drug use and then I started to evolve again as a kinky person and as a human. So I think when people understand that, listen, you may think that this is the most uh, expressive you can possibly be and that your kink has reached its pinnacle, but I guarantee you, sober, there's more there. You'll, have, you'll, you'll find yourself more sober. It's, it's definitely, I'm still learning. Um, I'm still unlearning stuff as well. Um, it's, 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 in, it's interesting uh, being in this situation because it was so intertwined with the drug taking and coming up to the five years, I have to be honest, I still get triggered and there's still things that I find very difficult like blood tests and so on because it's just the, like, the needle and stuff like that because I used to inject so it it's it sometimes can be quite triggering being me and just in those situations i you mentioned the film fire island my friend who's watched it he's like ralph you shouldn't watch that film that might be slightly triggering for you mm -hmm. i'm curious how bad it is in that film i'm, I'm assumed there would have been some drug taking in that film um i haven't watched it so i can't comment on it but it's it's I, I have friends who are really understanding and, and also try to keep me safe and, and I can be as honest as possible with what some of the stuff that goes on in my head. Um, parties is normally, depends on my headspace. If I'm in the wrong headspace, don't go to a party. That doesn't even matter if I'm slightly triggered or something. It's just, if I'm not in the right headspace, I shouldn't go to a party like that. Um, but as, as you say, it's it's so important that you you are open and honest about where you come from and what your journey has been because representation is so important. And I, I find at least here in Europe, um, it's quite difficult being sober and kinky. Not that I'm saying it's the drug is so prevalent, but because drinking is so integrated into kink culture in Europe, it is. It, it's really hard to find safe spaces because you don't necessarily have to have an alcohol or a drink problem or an a drug problem to want to do sober kink. It can also be because, well, you might be on the Asperger spectrum, you might have some mental um, no, depression and so on, so you can't really deal with alcohol and so on. Or you just don't like spaces that's too loud and too rambunctious and so on, so you more want a safe space where it's sober and you have some good people around you but that is definitely something that's missing in Europe. I think it's harder to find in Europe. I absolutely mm -hmm. agree. Um, uh, that's why I said Los Angeles is so unique in the fact that sort of there are so many sober people in the King scene here. I mean, if I go to the Eagle, you know, well, that's why my friends who took me to the Eagle in San Francisco uh, years ago, they said, listen, don't be scared. Cause there's something in the big book of AA about if you aren't drinking, you have no business in a bar. Well, that's fine. That's 80 years ago. And I don't have mm. to like everything that's written in that book. And that doesn't apply to me. Queer nightlife is queer nightlife. And a lot of that has to do with being in dungeon spaces or play spaces or uh, orgies or parties or bars or cafes. Uh, and to me, it's like, you know, uh, 
I was shocked when I went to Europe for Folsom the first time because you get up in the morning and you meet people for breakfast and they have a mimosa and then you hang out with them until lunch and then they and they're drinking beer and then you have lunch together and you drink more <laughs> you hang out until dinner and drink more and then you go you know in LA you hang out a little bit you go you want to go fuck and and then go home and in Europe it's much more social and the social mm -hmm. stuff is all about being in bars or or parties and um i'm glad that i gave myself permission i you know i've a lot of guys that i sort of mentor or sponsor in um who are crystal meth addicts and um they're a little bit more uh anxious to get started with getting back into the party scene than yeah. i was i i just was like it, it'll take however long it takes i'll get there I'll get back there. But these guys are like, no, no, no. I want to be able to go to a bathhouse. I want to be able to go to a sex club at six months. And I'm like, you can't go without somebody with you. You can't, yeah. you know? And so to me, it's like, if you find a sober buddy or a sober posse, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, the big party in Berlin, that um, first Folsom. And, you know, I was surrounded by probably 20 sober guys from all over the world. And we were all having sex with other people, but we were all within eyesight of each other. So no one was in any danger of 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 doing something stupid. Because, you know, as you say, you're five years, I'm 36 years. I'm still one drink away from making a terrible mistake. Uh, but I have people around me who remind me they'll make a, they'll make a mistake. I, I had um, an experience a, couple, um, a month, a month and a half ago where I went to a club night with two friends and I kind of went, okay, so are you two going to be on something? And he's like, yeah, okay. So I just have to switch my brain on for that. Why am I going? Do I have the right reason for going? I had a really, really good time, but would I do that again? Maybe not. It, it is, it's tricky when you don't have the safety net. Luckily enough, I ran into another friend who don't, he, he's not sober in, in a way, but he just doesn't drink at those parties. He's there to enjoy the music. So mm. I, I connected with him whilst I was there, which was a good, great help. I wasn't necessarily triggered whilst I was there, but it was still a bit of a head fuck going to a party where the two people I went with are on something. Um, they weren't out of control. It was very measured and they were just there to dance and I danced a lot and I had a bit of fun in the back room. But it, it was definitely, that's probably the most challenging thing I've done where normally if I do go out, I do have a safety net, friends who are aware of my situation, friends I can check in with if I, if I need to because it's important for me to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's great and it, it's why I think you're right. I think visibility matters a great deal. I think um, I think when they see people, you know, however, in whatever tiny leadership we role we have in our tiny little community, to make to have it be of some value to somebody. So if somebody's in a in a situation that they find themselves, I have hey, had too much to drink. I I, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, that guy's giving me attention that I don't want. Can you in my hotel room? Like I'm honored to be the guy, you know, I don't feel like somebody's auntie or anything. Like I'm honored to be the guy that you come over and say, I need some help. Cause that's what the guys at the mind chap did for me. You know, they taught me don't go with this guy. Cause if you go home with this guy, he's not safe. And we want to make sure that you're alive tomorrow. We want to make sure that you don't have any marks on you tomorrow. Like, you know, so I think part of the deal that we're supposed to do is be 
um, available. Like, you know, it's nice to know when you are at Darklands. It's nice to know there's a, a bunch of people at Darklands if I'm in it. Because that's like, to me, it's like, that's so loud and it's so chaotic and it's so mm. overstimulating. It's nice to be able to sort of go sit down with somebody and just go, that was a little, that was a lot. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, nothing was too much. But now, like, I like, I sort of, I like to have enough stimulation to sort of really have a great time. I, I enjoy people when they're on Molly. I think it's fun. And, uh, but if somebody's stupid, like, I don't want to waste my time with you. Because, no. like, that's just not fun for me. Absolutely. We've actually run a little bit over, but I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. Uh, to round it off, is there anywhere, if anyone's been watching this or listening to this, um, and you've said something that's really spoken to them, where can they get, an, get a hold of you? Uh, on Facebook, it's just my name, Ralph Bruno, B-R-U-N-E-A-U. And on Instagram, it's IML underscore 2017. So I'm happy to sort of be available for questions anybody might have, or if I can, you know, just want to say, hey, like, uh, so IML 2017. Fantastic. And if there is any, a little piece of advice you would give to someone who might be coming into becoming sober or realizing they might have an issue, what, what, what piece of advice you would give to them? Oh, gosh, I, you know. I know that's a big question. No, no, no. One of the cool things about being a clinician is they always tell us not to give advice. So it's always funny when somebody asks me for advice. Um, my experience has been to not go any faster than is comfortable for me, to not tr pace myself with somebody who is quicker or who is slower, to sort of do this in my way. You know, people are like, why didn't you run for IML when you were... 30 as opposed to when you were 64. It's like, I wasn't ready to run for IML. I didn't even know what IML was when I was 30. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I, you know, some people come in at 24, some people come in at 64. And uh, I'm just glad I had the experience. I'm glad I had the experience of, you know, my aunt died, my brother OD'd. Like, I'm glad I had the experience of, of walking into a room where they told me you don't have to live like this ever again. All you have to do is just not drink today. And that was good enough to get me to the next day. And then they took me to a meeting and, you know, just, just do it really, keep it simple. You know, if you, I, I, you know, we have all, what I learned from AIDS is we have, those of us who are around have all the time in the world. We don't have to rush. And so to me, it's like, I just like to, uh, I like to let people just stand by me. You'll have a nice time. We'll be safe. Like, I love it when people are like, will you, you know, will you be my bodyguard? I'm like, absolutely. Like anybody comes near you who wants to put something in your body, some part of themselves or some drug or some substance, like anybody who violates you, I will be right there. So find somebody like that. Cause there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. It's, it's visibility. It's, it's about being visible. And I, I on occasion will, if I'm going to a big event, I'll put out this, like, I'm going to this event. Are you a bit nervous? Give me a ride. We'll meet up. Have a talk, not a problem. Uh, sweet. Yeah, well, that's how I met you. Is you, you yeah. did that. So. so, brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on and spending a good hour with me. And it's been such an interesting chat with you. Um, and I know a lot more about you now, which is great. Oh, sweet. Well, it's uh, nice to get to know another Ralph. Uh, I'm honored that you asked me. And um, thanks for those who listen. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay.
Take care. Bye. Bye. So that was Ralph, our, um, our IML royalty from 2017, uh, class of 39. Um, what an inspiration, so much knowledge. Um, if anything has spoken to you from this episode, give him a right. Um, as you say, as, as you've seen and heard, he is an open book and happy to help you in any way he could. So thank you for watching. I'll be back again next week with my next guest. Uh, so you only have a week's wait this time, hopefully not a month again. But yeah, thank you and have a really great night and stay safe out there. Bye.